All right, before we get into our study of the Word tonight, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to focus on the Word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful that we have this uh, opportunity to come together this evening, this freedom that we have in this country because of the foresight, the wisdom, and the biblical convictions of our forefathers. Father, we're thankful that we still have some men in Washington, leaders who have a biblical frame of reference. We have people like Representative Louis Gohmert and Ted Cruz and numerous others from uh, the state of Texas and from some other states, but those numbers dwindle as the influence of Christianity in this country begins to uh, have less and less of a hold on people. And, Father, we just pray that you would uh, give them opportunities, that you would uh, bless them with situations where they can argue their points and convince others of their views, that we may continue to be a nation of laws and a nation that is uh, built upon uh, the Constitution. And, Father, we know that uh, today on 9-11, as we remember uh, the past, remember the events that occurred in 2001, remember the attack that this is just an ongoing attack, an assault on the West coming out of uh, radical Islam that is rooted in their uh, literal interpretation, their foundational interpretation of historic Islam. And Father, we pray that you would give wisdom to our leaders to wake up and to realize that this isn't some aberration or some minority group, but this is indeed a religious war declared against us again and again by imam after imam as they hate and despise Christians and Jews. And, that Father, it is only through wisdom from your word that we are able to accurately understand, analyze, and interpret these events And those who do not have a biblical frame of reference are just blind to reality, and they can lead us into such dangerous places. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to raise up leaders with wisdom and understanding that can take us in a direction where we we can protect our borders and that we can protect our citizens. And even if this involves uh, going outside of our borders to be involved in a war in order to prevent it from coming here, Give them wisdom to make that those decisions. And, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us as we study your word this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Now, the passage that we're studying tonight is in Romans chapter 15. And coming out of Romans 14, where there's this emphasis on unity, there's also an emphasis on on having exercising the law of love toward other believers, that there are disagreements on non-essential issues between different groups of believers, and specifically in this context, it had to do with issues related to food, and it is very likely that these issues related to food were were generated by many of the Jewish background believers that were involved in the church in Rome, so that as Paul brings this together uh, to a conclusion, starting in uh, Romans 15, 7, I talked about that mostly last time, talking about Romans uh, uh, 15, 7, and 8, the foundation for this unity, and he is specifically addressing unity between Jew and Gentile. And in verse 7, I'll just put the context up here 
uh, tonight, verse 7, he said, Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now the application or the implication of one another would apply to any different groups of people. But specifically in the context, as we'll see, this has to do with with uh, some some differences between the Jewish background Christian community and the Gentile background Christian community. And that becomes very clear through the examples that Paul develops in beginning in verse 9 as he goes to uh, four different passages in the Old Testament in order to show that there was always a plan in God's, always a part of God's plan for Jew and Gentile to come together in unity. So he starts this conclusion, pulling this together in verse 8, where he says, uh, For I say uh, that Jesus Christ, it's not a now, as I corrected that last week, as we'll see uh, here in this slide. It is a gar in the Greek, which always introduces an explanation. He said, for, um, he says, said, for I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That phrase circumcision is sort of a code word for the Jews because it goes back to the fact that circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So he's specifically stating, as I pointed out, that Jesus came specifically as a servant to the Jews. He came primarily addressing the Jews uh, with the message to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He initially sent out his disciples uh, to just the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He, uh, several occasions he emphasized that his ministry was primarily targeted to Israel. And so Paul is taking his readers back to remind them that Jesus Christ came first and foremost as a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and prophecies uh, related to the Messiah. Uh, So he came as a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to their fathers. So we looked at that verse last time, and one of the promises that I looked at, I want to go back to this last time, uh, I mentioned it last time, but I want to go into this in a little more detail this evening. Uh, it's, uh, this is an interesting passage to look at in terms of messianic prophecy. In Galatians 3.16, you don't need to turn there, but while I'm going through this, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. Abraham, uh, so in Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed. Now, this is important. When you think through what's taught from the Old Testament in terms of the Messiah, even the fact that there are messianic prophecies in the Old Testament is something that that in certain areas of evangelicalism today, including professors in the Old Testament department at Dallas Theological Seminary and at other evangelical schools, there's a lot of question as to whether there are truly prophecies, messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, that's not something that's new. For many of us coming out of our background, that is something that's somewhat surprising because we've always heard, you've heard from me, you've heard from other pastors that you've listened to an emphasis on Isaiah 53, Psalm 110, Psalm 22, many other passages in the Old Testament as being 
prophecies of the Messiah. But since the Protestant Reformation, there has been a certain segment of Bible belief, and I want to emphasize this, Bible-believing evangelicals like John Calvin and others who were influenced sort of indirectly through a stream of thought that came out of Jewish, came out, out of really rabbinical teaching. And if we understand the background of this, I'm just going to cover this briefly. It took, because, because of the impact, because of the inroads of, of Christians into the Jewish community, going to passages like Isaiah 53. If you go to a lot of Jews and have them read Isaiah 53, if you just put it there and you don't put verses on it or put a name on it, they're going to think that's talking about Jesus. And they're going to think it comes out of the New Testament. Even if you tell most Jews that it's from Isaiah, they'll still think it's from the New Testament because they don't know their Bible any any better than most Christians, Christians do. Uh, but what happened during this first thousand years the, the, the Jewish rabbis were trying to figure out ways to, de, to, to, to sort of deprophesy these messianic prophecies, to remove the, the implications. And there were a lot of different things. I've covered this before. I covered it a lot in a series on the Messiah right before Christmas about three years ago. There was these various attempts to reinterpret and even uh, change the terminology in the text. There were some messianic prophecies that when the Masoretes put the vowel points in, if they changed the vowel points, it would change the meaning of the word. For example, if you have a word, English word stop, S-T-P, where you take the vowel out, if you change the vowel from an O to an E, you have a completely different word. And if you change it from stop to step, it changes the whole context. Now, you may look at that and say, well, you know, in some sentences, that wouldn't even make sense. Well, there's a couple of verses in the Bible where the word was changed by changing the vowel points, and they're, you know, they're almost impossible to understand that verse as it's based in the Masoretic text. And that was part of what they did. The Masoretes were were uh, recording and preserving the scripture in that period from the second century until about the eighth or ninth century A.D. during this same period. So they were trying to to remove these messianic uh, prophecies from from the Old Testament. So there were a lot of different ways in which which they they did that. And once you, once uh, they did that, it and and were able to sort of reinterpret these passages and these new interpretations became embedded within rabbinical teaching. So the passages that, if you go back, for example, to the early Targums, Targums were commentaries on the, on the Bible that were written somewhere around the first or second century. Um, maybe some Targums were even written before the first century A.D., and so you go back and you read those. They understood some of these passages to be messianic. But you look at rabbinical commentaries after about uh, uh, 900, 1,000 A.D., they no longer understood them to be messianic. So there's this shift. Well, in during the Protestant Reformation, you would have... Uh, Protestant pastors who wanted to learn Hebrew, and the only person around who knew Hebrew was a, was a rabbi in town, and so they would go and they would learn Hebrew and they would have conversations with the rabbi, and they would pick up these interpretations of the Old Testament that had removed the Messiah from this. So there was a certain stream 
of even Reformation theologians and pastors, John Calvin being one of them, who didn't see these passages as being messianic. For example, Genesis 3, uh, 3.15, a passage we look at many, many times, when God is announcing the curse on the serpent and said that that uh, your seed, uh, there will be enmity between your seed and her seed, and your seed will bruise uh, her seed on the heel, and her seed will bruise your seed on the head. And we understand that to be the first mention, of, the first indication of the gospel, that the seed of the serpent is talking about those who follow the serpent, and the seed of the woman is talking ultimately about the Messiah. And that key word there is the word seed. And so we look at that. But John Calvin didn't look at, look at it that way. In fact, Calvin understood the serpent to be just a snake. Now, you've always heard differently. and But there are people, there's a man who, um, I'm not sure if he still is, but for a while he was the head of the, uh, the chairman of the Old Testament Department at Dallas Seminary recently, and he believes the same thing, that the serpent in Genesis 3 was just a snake. And you say, well, what about Revelation chapter 12, chapter 13 that defines uh, Satan as the serpent, the devil? You say, yes, but that wasn't written when Moses wrote Genesis 3. That's their argument. That wasn't written when Moses wrote Genesis 3. So how would somebody in 1400 B.C., without having, without having access to Revelation, know that the serpent in Genesis 3 was something more than just a snake? That's their, that's their argument. And we believe that, that there was an, an understanding of what these things meant that's not necessarily identified as such in Scripture. There was a lot that God taught uh, Adam and Eve and a lot that was revealed in the Old Testament that we know of that wasn't recorded in Scripture. You read through Hebrews 11 sometime, and it talks about what Ab- Abraham did, what he did, because he saw the city of God looking to the future. Well, how did he know that? We don't read about that in the Old Testament. So just because it's not recorded doesn't mean it wasn't revealed and they didn't have access to that information. So this term seed is important. It takes us back to Genesis 3.15 and to other references to seed in the Old Testament. But there are those who will come along and say, see, there's not really this kind of uh, emphasis. that You don't really find this reference in the Old Testament. So that's why I wanted you to turn, because you need to mark this in your Bibles, and turn to Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. Now, this is near the end of uh, Abraham's life. And Abraham is, uh, in Genesis chapter 22... Uh, this is when Abraham is, takes his son to uh, Isaac up to Mount Moriah to be offered as a, as a sacrifice at the last minute. In Genesis chapter uh, 22, verse 14, uh, uh, Abraham, uh, excuse me, earlier in verse 12, God says to Abraham to stop. Uh, don't lay your hands on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. And so he took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering and called God's name Yahweh, Yireh, the Lord will provide. Okay, all that sort of gives us the background. Then the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time out of heaven. So he's hearing a voice. If you had your little digital recorder with you, you could record the voice of God. God is speaking objectively to Abraham and says, 
By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And he says, I will, actually this is a Hebrew idiom, it means I will certainly bless you and certainly multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sands on the seashore. Now, the word that is translated descendants is the word uh, uh, zerot, which means seed, and it is one of those words that is a collective. We have certain kinds of words like that. You look at the English word deer, and it can be singular or it can be plural. There are many words like that. Seed is one of those words. It can be it's singu- always singular in form, but sometimes it can have a corporate meaning. It can have the meaning of a plural group. And so you have to look at the context. Sometimes we're talking about a descendant. Sometimes it's talking about multiple descendants. So in Genesis 22:17, God says, I will multiply your descendants. And there the word would be considered plural because he's reiterating the promise of the Abrahamic covenant and the context when it's compared to the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore, that indicates a plurality. So this would be seed singular, but it's emphasizing a plural subject. And then he goes on to say, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now, See, I didn't add this in the in the slide, but that second word, descendants, it's the same word and the same form of the word. It's a singular in, in the Hebrew, but it changes its meaning. Now, how do you know that it changes its meaning? Because when you get down to this pronoun that is translated there in almost every English translation, Let's go back to English 101. What are your pronouns? Your singular pronouns are I, you, third person singular, he, she, it. What are your plural pronouns? We are us, first person plural. You are y'all for second person plural. And third person plural is there. So this is translated there. But the Hebrew word has a third-person singular suffix. That's how you would indicate uh, the pronoun. Is it just a suffix that's added to the Hebrew word? So it's a third-person singular pronoun. So what happens is God shifts. Here he's talking about descendants, plural. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. And here he adds something, and this descendant should be translated as a singular in order to conform to the third-person singular pronoun because this third-person singular pronoun refers back to this use of the word seed. Now, that's very subtle, but what happens is that God is shifting from talking about the descendants of Abraham to the seed of Abraham. And then in verse 18, he says, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is what Paul is quoting. He's In these other passages where God uses the word seed that has a plural sense, that wouldn't fit 
in Genesis 3.15. Paul is making a specific statement in Genesis, I mean in Galatians 3.15, that that singular, that singular noun specifically refers to the Messiah. He is making the statement in Genesis 3.16, I mean Galatians 3.16, that the seed in Genesis 22.17, there at the end, is referring to the Messiah. He's saying this is a messianic prophecy. But what happens is when you don't believe in messianic prophecies, instead of identifying the word seed here as a singular, what you do then is you take what is clearly a third-person singular pronoun in the text, and because it doesn't fit, you just change it into your English translation to a third-person plural. But it's not a third-person plural in the original. And the way it makes sense is to make it agree with its antecedent and make that an- and understand the antecedent to be singular because that noun can be either singular or or plural. And then it makes sense by verse 18 that God is saying in your seed, specifically this one singular seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He's not talking about all of the descendants. Here he is just talking about that singular seed. So that makes this clearly a messianic prophecy. Anybody have any questions? This is where it gets really fun getting into grammar and why grammar is important. And this verse, Genesis 3.16, is a very important verse because when we start talking about uh, inspiration and inerrancy, that, and we use those terms plenary and verbal, and pl- with plenary we mean all, of this, all the Scripture is equally, uh, is equally inspired by God, and, and it's verbal. Every word is inspired by God. It's not the ideas that are inspired by God. It's that each and every word, whether it's a singular, a plural, whether it's a present tense or an aorist tense or an imperfect tense, every part of that word is significant exegetically. We can't just blow past it and say, well, this is some sort of stylistic choice on the part of the writer or that Paul is just See, this is what a Jewish response would be, is that Paul is going back and he's reinventing and reinterpreting the Old Testament. It really should be understood all the way through there to be seeds, but Paul is going to force it to mean seed, and he's going to create it, create a messianic meaning out of it. But the reality is because there's that third-person singular pronoun in the text and there's no textual variant, that has to mean that the seed, word seed there should be taken as a singular. Tinker. Uh, the Old Testament writers, did they know that the Messiah would be uh, in hypostatic union, the God-man? Sure. That becomes clear later on. I mean, when you, when you look at what's going on, uh, let me repeat his question so it's on the, on the recording. Uh, he asked, did the Old Testament writers understand the hypostatic union? And that's, that's evident in, in places where, for example, in Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 talks about the promise of God, uh, of the Messiah, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so in Micah, Micah 5.2, I want to read it because I want to make sure I get the wording precise. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. That's clearly messianic. 
whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. See, the only way his goings forth can be everlasting is if he's eternal. That means he's got to be God. But he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So right there you have this indication that he's born and yet he's eternal. And there are other places like that in, in the Old Testament where both the, 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 the human side and his birth, for example, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 9-6 says that, that he will be called uh, Mighty God. See, that's a clear indication that he is born, he'll be called Mighty God. And Isaiah 7.14, he's going to be born of a virgin. His name's going to be what? Emmanuel, God with us. So, yeah, they, they didn't understand it as clearly as you and I understand it. They understood he was going to be God. They understood he was going to be man, but they didn't ever think analytically to figure out what that meant. Neither did the early church. It wasn't until you get to the... Uh, Council of Nicaea, and then later the Council by the Council of Chalcedon in the fifth century, that you get this this finally this wording finally resolved. But they believed Jesus was God. I mean, in, in the early church, they believed Jesus was God. They believed he was man, but they hadn't figured out how to articulate it and put those two concepts together. So we just think of it because we've got the vocabulary. That language isn't even in the in the New Testament like Trinity. Paul didn't have the word Trinity. So Paul couldn't think as precisely about the Godhead as you and I can. That's what that just you know blows your mind when you think about that. It's they believed in the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, it's clear, but but they didn't have the vocabulary. They hadn't structured it that way. And vocabulary is so important. You've heard me talk about this before. Just go to some country or culture where you have to teach the Bible in a, in, in a foreign language that doesn't have the theological tradition that English has. Jeff is smiling back there because Jeff's getting ready to go down to Brazil and he's going to have to work through a translator and that's going to be a whole new experience for him. But this is, this is what happens, uh, is that, that cultures, and I'm just talking about Russian. If you go to some place like, like Zimbabwe or some place in Zambia, and you get back in, you know, some pretty remote areas, and where they're still speaking tribal languages, they have they don't have the, this kind of uh, precision in their vocabulary to communicate some of these things. And that I know Jim Myers worked for years with Margaret in in selecting the precise words that should be used for for specific things. That when we went to uh, Kazakhstan in 2000, and when was that, 2000, and we had, uh, you've heard me tell this story, some of you may not have, it was it was so hot. I mean, Almaty, Kazakhstan is about like Tucson, Arizona in August. And we were in a room that had two window units. And when they were working well, we had 100 people in that room, and that room was about the third the size of this auditorium, just down to the front seats. And it was 106 or 107 outside, and if those those uh, air conditioners were working well, it got down to 97 degrees inside. And half the room spoke Kazakh and half the room spoke Russian. I had a Kazakh interpreter and a Russian interpreter. And so the Russian interpreter was great. It was not so great. The Kazakh interpreter was tremendous, but the Kazakh interpreter kept 
he, he had translated for a lot of American pastors and Bible teachers who had gone over to, to Almaty, but they didn't use technical words like reconciliation and justification. I'm not talking about big words like superlapsarianism or things like that. They just, just words you think of that are biblically sound words, reconciliation, uh, imputation, justification. And we'd use these words and he was, he would turn around and look at us like, well, I'm not sure what the right word should be. So these words are very, very important, and it's very important to go back and look at this. So I just wanted to bring this in, that this is what is in the background, that there are real messianic prophecies in the Scripture. So let's go forward. In Romans, back to Romans 15.9. Romans 15.9. So Jesus is, I mean, Paul continues to talk about why Jesus has come, that he has come first and foremost to the circumcision, and then, uh, but this is not to the exclusion of the Gentiles. He came for both. He came to the Jews and he came to the Gentiles. So he says for uh, that the Gentiles might glorify God, as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing, uh, sing to your name. Now, this is a quote that comes out of a couple of uh, different passages in the Old Testament. The word confess here is not homologeo, it's ex-homologeo, which adds a little something to it. It's primarily translated praise, and that would fit in the parallel in the psalm. There's a synonymous parallelism. For this reason, I will praise to you, give praise to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So the synonymous parallelism would be between homologeo uh, and the word sing. So homologeo should be understood to be praised in this particular context. Now, this comes out of a verse in the Old Testament that's located in two places, 2 Samuel 22.50 and Psalm 18.49. The, the psalm is the same in both places. In 2 Samuel 22.50, David is rejoicing in God's victory over his Gentile enemies who will eventually serve God. And that's what Paul's going to in each of these Old Testament quotes. Remember, we've gone through how the Old Testament quotes are used in the New Testament. And the first one is prophecy. And I think that's what's going on here. I've, I've gone back and forth thinking about this, whether it was the first one, which is prophecy, or the third one, which is, which is application. And I could see a case for application. I might have said that last week, but I think this is prophecy because in, in each of these places, the point that Paul is making is that the writer from the Old Testament is foreseeing a time when Gentiles will be uh, as equally blessed by the kingdom as the Jews, that salvation is not just for Israel, that salvation is not just for the Jews, but it will include both Jews and Gentiles in the future. So we look at this. I want you to turn back with me to Psalm 18. We're going to run around in the Old Testament just a little bit to look at the original context of these of these quotations. And Psalm 18 is just one of those tremendous, uh, tremendous psalms that you ought to spend some time thinking through. It's one of those psalms, as I said last time, that has a historical uh, note to it indicating uh, that um, uh, this was when uh, David was, was delivered, David was saved, 
uh, by God, and he gives, goes back, and he, and he is giving thanks because God rescued him uh, from his from his all of his enemies. This is written in, so by Second Samuel twenty two. It's written at the end of uh, David's life, looking back on all the ways in which God delivered him, uh, according to the uh, uh, annotation there, which is inspired. That's really verse one, where it reads to the chief musician a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord these words of the, the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this is that's part of the inspired text. It tells us the context when when this was written, and he begins with a praise uh, from from David. It's a praise psalm. He says, "I will love you, O Yahweh, my strength. The Lord is my rock, Selah, and my fortress, Matsuda." And I pointed this out last time that this is uh, like the same word for Masada. We anglicize it to Masada. It's Metzada in the Hebrew. And so it just refers to the fact that God is a fortress and he is our deliverer. Now, that first word rock is Selah, and that indicates uh, that which is a, a, um, a fortress or a deliverance. Uh, it's not the word Sur, um, which is a uh, slightly different word indicating a foundation stone. Uh, or a bedrock. So this is uh, my rock, Selah, which is a stronghold or a fortress or a bulwark, which is parallel to the word stronghold that's used at the end, but it's a different word. So um, this word and the word, uh, sometimes this word strength is translated stronghold. They're different words in the Hebrew, each indicating different uh, a, a, a different vantage point. So the, the sum of these, all these metaphors is that God is the one who protects us. He protects us like a rock. We can hide in the rock and we're protected from the storms of life. He's like a fortress and we're protected from our enemies, whatever is assailing us. He is our deliverer. He's the one who rescues us from the crises of life. He is our strength. This is like a stronghold or a bulwark. He's the one in whom I will trust. He is my shield. And that, that is how we extinguish the arrows and spears and bullets that fly our way. And he is our stronghold, which is a different word indicating a refuge high above everything else, a high craggy peak where we're hidden and protected. And so David indicates here the sufficiency of God, that he and he alone is the one who ultimately protects us. We can do a lot of things to protect ourselves, but ultimately it's God who protects us. You can protect your house. You can get an alarm system. You can get a, uh, 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 you can get a 45 or a Glock. You can get any number of weapons. You can get a blowgun. Uh, you can get a taser. You can get pepper spray. Recently, I learned that what's better than pepper st- spray is wasp and hornet spray because it will shoot a 20-foot stream, and you don't have to wait for the person to get five feet in front of you. There are a lot of different ways you can protect yourself. But 
ultimately, it's the Lord who protects you. We have a responsibility to do what we can. We're going to leave our house. We're going to lock the doors. We're going to turn on the, the alarm system, and we're going to go wherever we're going to go, and we're going to come back. And, and we're, but above all, we're trusting the Lord to keep us safe because we live in a world where people can still break in and get our valuables. And so we trust in the Lord, but he's the ultimate one who provides protection for us even when things go tough. And what's interesting is you think through David's life, he went through hard times. He went through military defeats. He went through difficulty, yet God sustained him even in the midst of calamity. This isn't a promise that God's going to keep us calamity-free. It is that God's going to protect us in and through the calamities of life. And so David ends saying, I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised. Why? Because he delivers us from the storms of life. And he concludes, so I shall be saved from my enemies. Then we get to the end of the psalm. In Psalm 1846, he says, the Lord lives. He is a living God as opposed to all of the idols. Blessed be my rock. He is my rock. He is my Sore. He is the one who provides protection from us. We use the word rock in much the same way metaphorically in English. We see somebody who's strong, somebody who's able to withstand difficult circumstances, and we say that person is just a rock. We mean they're stable and they're solid. It's a very similar metaphor probably uh, derives from the Scripture. And then he says, let the God of my salvation be exalted. He's, we are to praise God for the way he has delivered David in his life. He says, it is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. You know, David did his role as a leader, but ultimately it was God who empowered his leadership and enabled him to rule over his people. Verse 48, he says, he delivers me from my enemies. He had enemies who were Gentiles. They were the Philistines. They were the Amorites. There were others who were opposed to Israel. God delivered him from his enemies who were Gentiles. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. And then he says, therefore, this is his conclusion, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. Now, if you look at this in your English Bible, some of your English Bibles will translate this nations. The Hebrew word here is goy. And goy, according to the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, means a people. Uh, it can be translated Gentiles. It can be translated heathens, tribal groups, or nations. And its primary meaning is an people who are united by a blood relationship. That is a common ethnic group. During the time of Scripture, almost all nations were ethnically related. You had the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Israelites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. They're all ethnic groups. They go back to the tribal divisions that are established in the uh, Table of Nations back in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. And it's important to understand that, that ta that's called the Table of Nations, but that defines these tribal groups. And those tribal group names become the, the standard reference point 
all the way through into prophetic passages such as Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. If you want to understand who Gog and Magar, Gog are and Meshach and Tubal and all of those, you have to go back to, to Genesis chapter 10 to understand who they are. Initially, we had these tribal, uh, tribal distinctions that eventually became what the Bible calls nations, different from what we talk about today as nations, but they were because they came out of this tribal uh, background, which is what's indicated uh, in the work and, and the all the lexicons. Uh, the, it goes on to point out that the Hebrew word goy is translated Gentiles, for example, in the New King James Version in this passage, but in other translations, it all uses the word nations. But nations has a completely different sense. And when you look at the quotation uh, of this verse in Romans, Paul, tra- Paul uses the word Gentiles. Now, when the psalm was translated into, into Greek in the Septuagint, it used the Greek word ethnoi. And ethnoi, like goi, is a broad term. And it is almost universally translated as Gentiles in all of the ancient translations of the text because it's understanding it's not talking about national entities. The text is talking about Gentiles. It's talking about a group of people who are non-Jewish, who are not in a covenant relationship with God. The word ethnoi, according to the uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich lexicon, describes a body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions. Okay, it can mean a tribe, it can mean a clan, it can mean uh, Gentiles, or it can be mean people or even a nation. So the conclusion that I'm coming to here is that those translating the Romans 15.9 passage are exactly correct, that this should have been translated Gentiles in uh, Psalm 18.49. There's a contrast between the Jews and the non-Jews who are Gentiles, and it is those who are non-Jews who didn't have a covenant relationship with God who will also be joined with the Jews in the future to give thanks to God. So he's going to the Old Testament saying, see, here are these passages that talk about a future role of the Gentiles and how these will be united together in the future. Now let's look at at our next passage, our next quotation, which is in the next verse, Psalm, uh, Deuteronomy 32-43 and Romans 15-11. Is that right? No. I didn't have a slide with the Romans passage on it, so that's going to be Romans 15, verse 10. Romans 15-10. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, you see, this comes right out of the first phrase in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And if we turn back, let's turn back so we can observe the context. It's always so important each time we do this to go back and see what's going on. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is giving his, his final message uh, to the Israelites. It's called the Song of Moses. It's written in poetry. It's introduced at the end of chapter 31. And begins, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Why does Moses say that? 
because it's by the mouth of two witnesses that something is confirmed. This is a legal document. And he's calling upon two witnesses, those who inhabit the heavens. That would be the angels, not, not the heavens as an immaterial body of planets and stars, because they can't be a witness. He's talking about the, what in the, the sentient beings who inhabit the heavens. That would be the angels. And then he says, and hear, O earth. So he's talking about those who inhabit the earth, those who are the, uh, the human beings. So he's calling about two witness groups to witness this, this, this legal proclamation. And then he goes all the way through here and summarizing everything that God has done for Israel and the value of Israel uh, to God and that God is going to fulfill his covenant and bless them. And then we come to the end, the very last verse, after he's gone through all of this uh, uh, talking about God's blessing and his cursing, how he will bless and curse Israel in the future, and he concludes and he says, Rejoice, this is a command, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So he clearly has, he's talking about the future, that there will be a time when the, the Gentiles are to worship together with the people of God from the Old Testament, the Jewish people. And so Paul is just lifting that one phrase out of that Old Testament, say, see, here's another indication that in the future Jew and Gentile will worship God together. That's the point that he's making in terms of unity in Romans 15. Then in 1511, he says, and again, he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. So here uh, he's quoting from Psalm 117, 1 and 2. I put the entire psalm on the board for you. This is the shortest psalm in the Bible. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great towards us. That's his chesed love, his faithful, loyal love. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So, so Paul goes back to Psalm 117 and says, Here's another example where a Jewish psalmist is calling upon the Gentiles to praise and worship God. So Jews and Gentiles coming together. He's saying this was clearly prophesied and indicated in the Old Testament. And then he comes to the last quote in verse 12, where he's quoting from Isaiah 11, verse 10. And again, this prophecy in Isaiah 11, verse 10, describes that in the future, Gentiles will praise God through the same Messiah that's given to Israel. And so in Romans 15, 12, he, he, Paul states, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father. And so he's using this plant analogy that this root that comes out of Jesse is going to be uh, the Messiah. That in other illustrations in Isaiah, the tree of Jesse, that's all his descendants, is cut down as if it's dead no more. And this pictured prophetically the end of the Davidic line uh, after the uh, exile, after the Babylonian captivity. But then he says there's going to be in some places a branch comes out of this previously thought to be dead stump. That's a term for the Messiah. He's the branch. 
and other passages in Isaiah. Here, uh, it's the root of Jesse. There's this root that comes out of that stump. Who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him. So here again, it's that same word goy. It's not talking about nations. It's talking about Gentiles. And, and um, the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, as you look at the uh, quote in, in uh, Romans fifteen twelve, you see that it's slightly different, and that's because of the way the uh, Septuagint translated it into uh, into uh, Greek. And so, when the uh, uh, when the writers of Scripture quote from the Septuagint, the Septuagint differs from the Hebrew text that we have. That the, it's not that the the Septuagint is wrong; it just isn't an accurate translation, but what the Septuagint is still stating is true, so under inspiration it's still quoted as accurate. And so it reads, He who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, that is the Messiah, in him the Gentiles will have hope. They will have this confident expectation of the future. Now I want you to notice that this key word that that Paul brings in here is important uh, to, to his conclusion. So let's turn back to our passage in Romans, in Romans 15, verse 13, and we see that he's going to take the idea of hope and then develop it. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? By believing. Joy and peace comes as a result of believing, not believing at justification, but this is talking about faith in afterwards, sanctification, that Paul, Paul's prayer or his blessing is that God, who is the source of hope, this is a genitive of source, God, who's the source of hope, will fill us. It's the same word, pimplami, that's used to the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians 5.18. Be filled by means of the Spirit. What does the Spirit fill us with? He fills us with his word, and as a result, he fills us with joy and peace. When we believe God's word, then the byproduct of that is we have joy and we have peace. And those terms are used uh, together. Joy is happiness. It is contentment. It is the uh, presence of tranquility, the absence of conflict. This peace here is not talking about peace between man and God. It's talking about inner peace and inner happiness. And so how do we have that inner peace and inner happiness? through believing, that is, in trusting in the word, that we may abound in hope. The God of hope is the one that will enable us to abound in hope. How? By the power of God the Holy Spirit. So he concludes this section by turning us back to focus on the role of God the Holy Spirit in sanctification in the church age. And so this emphasizes that if we want to have hope, if we want to have joy and peace, then this is a result of trusting in the Word of God. Now next time we're going to get into the interesting conclusion of Romans. Well, next time we'll be in two weeks, and we'll start working our way through the last uh, last part of this chapter, which is Paul's conclusion to his epistle to the Romans. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through your word and to understand the significance of prophecies and how they have been accurately fulfilled and how you prophetically promised a Messiah from the Old Testament and that this was specifically fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
Father, we're also thankful that we have hope because you are the God of hope. That no matter what our circumstances may be, no matter how hopeless things may appear from a human perspective, we can have a confident expectation because we know that, as David said, you are our rock, you are our fortress, you are our stronghold, you are our shield, you are our uh, lofty place wherein we take protection because only you can provide that protection for us. And that is supplied through your word and through God the Holy Spirit who fills us with hope and peace as we study your word and apply it in our lives. And we pray that you would challenge us to, to follow your word, that we may experience that fullness of peace and joy in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.